Hey, just before the episode starts, I wanted to issue a quick trigger warning. One of the movies we discuss on this episode deals with some very emotionally heavy topics, including death by suicide. Uh, The film takes that subject very seriously and respectfully, and so do we in our discussion of it. But I'd still advise you to only listen to this episode if you feel ready for that. All right, on to the episode. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and I want to start by saying happy Pride. It's June, and to celebrate Pride Month, we're dedicating both of the June episodes to queer cinema. We are putting the Technicolor Marathon on hold for a few weeks, but don't fret, Rance Collins is back today to discuss our first Pride Month film, which is called The Children's Hour. Before we get to that, I'll give my quick review of the film that won the Grand Jury Prize at 2020's Venice Film Festival and just hit theaters this year, a Mexican film called New Order. Stick around. In 2019, the film Parasite came out, and besides winning all of the major film awards, it served to highlight income inequality, which is something that has plagued the world's capitalist societies forever. Uh, And like the best movies, Parasite looks at the issue through the empathetic lens of cinema. You could read about the wealth gap all day, but it's different to see characters experience poverty and to feel desperate and angry alongside them. Parasite ultimately becomes violent, and the character motivations that get us there feel real and relatable, and that's part of what makes the movie so good. The violent place that Parasite ends is where New Order begins. The new film from Mexican director Michel Franco won the Grand Jury Prize at 2020's Venice Film Festival and just hit cinemas this year, and it tells a story of uprising. It opens on a lavish wedding in the extravagant home of a wealthy Mexican family, and the film lays subtle hints showing the vastly different life experiences of the well-off family members versus their lower-class maids and grounds workers. And all of this happens while news reports play in the background telling about riots happening in the nearby area. Things come to a head in a thrilling and terrifying scene depicting the lower-class mob overtaking the wedding party, with brutality and righteous anger. That's where things begin, and from there we follow the bride, Marianne, uh, who has managed to escape the house alive. She tries to navigate the city, which is in a state of serious unrest after rioters have killed untold hundreds, and the military begins to take control and establish a police state. 
The film is ultimately an intense and largely tragic series of events, and not for the faint of heart. Despite the heaviness of the story, New Order is incredibly stylish. It's full of engrossing verite camera work and really bold colors. Marianne wears this bright red suit for much of the film. It's really striking. And the rioters have this deep green paint of some kind that sort of seems symbolic of their resistance. And they throw it at people and it shows up in unexpected places. There are some truly stunning shots here, including a sequence uh, inside a moving car that reminded me of some of the incredible shots in the film Children of Men from another Mexican director, one of my favorites, Alfonso Cuaron. The subject matter of New Order feels up to the minute uh, in the way it addresses social class and the rising tension that seems to be building in recent years all over the world. Uh, And the film makes a strong case that things need to be changed on a macro level before something like this really happens. Uh, It really makes this kind of uprising feel real and believable in the way that cinema does best. But as prescient as much of this movie feels, the story loses a lot of steam as it goes on. The film is never as strong as that wedding sequence at the opening third, and it would actually be a stronger piece of cinema if you cut the story off there and just called it a short film. After that spectacular beginning, it feels like a slog to get to the movie's end. Marianne runs into problem after problem, and the story gets so dark in some moments that it borders on like misery porn. And for what? A plotline that isn't particularly compelling as human drama and really only serves to demonstrate how bad things are. The cautionary tale felt like it was complete after the first 30 minutes, and everything else feels like self-serious overkill. But even with those complaints, the technical craft on display in New Order and the sheer size of the story are remarkable. It's no wonder this film impressed festival audiences. There are scenes in this film I will never forget, and many of the film's single images are spectacular. If you're in the mood for something unique and intense, this movie may be right up your alley, but be prepared for a story that's emotionally challenging to the point of feeling (laughs) oppressive. But if you can stomach all that, director Michelle Franco's sense of style and pacing is nothing if not memorable. New Order is now playing in theaters. June is Pride Month, and as mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to use both June episodes to look at some LGBTQ plus films. But just before we get into that, I'd like to make it clear that Arthouse Garage is a safe and inclusive space. I believe strongly that movies are for everyone, and that emphatically includes people in the LGBTQ plus community. So to all of our LGBTQ plus listeners, you are welcome and affirmed here. Cinema also has an amazing way of providing a voice for marginalized people, and so I thought, since I'm a podcaster, what better way to be an ally than to create space for discussion around queer themes in cinema, since members of the LGBTQ plus community have historically been so marginalized. And one more thing before we get into the movie discussion. I wanted to say that, like a lot of people in the South, I grew up in spaces that were very much not inclusive or affirming, and it took years for me to truly see the damage being caused to LGBTQ plus people, especially young people, whether that damage comes from family members or the church or the state legislature. And that's actually going to play somewhat into our movie discussion today, but I've put a link in the show notes to a couple of studies done by the Trevor Project. These studies look at the mental health challenges that LGBTQ plus youth face, Um, as the Trevor Project seeks to prevent suicide in LGBTQ youth. 
So please click those links and look through those. I think personal education is a really important step towards a more fully inclusive society. And with that, let us once again welcome classic film guru Rance Collins. I'll remind you all again to check out his podcast on Oscars history called The Envelope, Please. It is excellent. Welcome back again, Rance. How are you? Oh my gosh, I'm so good. So good to be here. <laughs> I feel like I, you know, I may need to get upgraded from being a guest to being like a recurring mm, yeah. um, character, you know, I like at, that. at yeah. this point. I can because uh... I, I feel like I've been on enough to be considered <laughs> um, recurring status. Yes, I agree. I think there's you and maybe only one or two other people that would fit that bill, but I can make you guys T-shirts or something. <laughs> okay, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, uh, when I started planning around Pride Month, I thought, you know, I want to do something, um, you know, in the queer cinema space. I also want to have people besides myself talking about them. I was like, who do I know that's gay and loves movies? Uh, well, of course, Rance. <laughs> I did have a few other names, but like Rance is the easiest person to get. Let's have Rance do this. Um, and so I, I asked uh, you. Ironically, uh, a lot of other gay guys say Rance is the easiest person to get, but that's a different. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. Um, well, <laughs> so I asked you to pick the movie that we talk about, and it's a very interesting one. Just before we get to that, though. Um, I wanted to ask you about something that happened in the news recently that I thought you might have an opinion about, and that is the big MGM news. So for listeners who don't know, Amazon purchased MGM for something like $9 billion, and uh, it's kind of a big deal. So I want to see if you have, you know, negative, positive thoughts about that whole situation. You know, I've been asking a lot of people the same question, actually, because mm -hmm. I've been trying to figure out whether or not it's good or bad news, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the thing with MGM that's like so difficult to gauge is that MGM as a company has struggled so much for the last uh, several decades. Mm. I mean, you know, MGM as as a power source of film hasn't really existed in our lifetime. Yeah, you know, that's true. Um, they um, they have bond, mm. you know, because of their because of United Artists. But um, the United Artists Library is the is the biggest part of MGM, I think more so than the movies that the studio actually produced in the last 30 or 40 years, um, because the, the crown jewels of the MGM library are in possession of Warner brothers. Yeah. So like that, not um, part of this, right? Yeah. So if you're wizard of Oz singing in the rain, gone with the wind, you know, the movies that people think about as being MGM movies, those don't, those don't exist in the movies that make money, if right. if you will, mm -hmm. outside of Bond, um, don't exist in the MGM library. Uh, so for I think for a lot of it, you know, MGM is still very much uh, emotionally in our culture uh, a very big deal because mm -hmm. that lion roaring at the beginning yeah. of the movie mm -hmm. is uh, there's something cinematic and special about that yeah you know it's leo the lion i shouldn't say that <laughs> lion i was really disrespectful um so uh on the one hand it, it feels like being <clears throat> getting uh, a company that's huge and um successful in streaming mm -hmm. content uh getting possession of mgm probably uh, might be some insurance in a way yeah. uh, for a company that's always on the verge of going away. Um, but also 
and I mean, it's not like they, they don't have a studio lot. They just have, um, offices in mm-hmm. a, in a tower in uh, I think century city right now it's moved around. They were in Santa Monica for a little while. I think it's in century city now. Um, and it's literally just a couple floors of offices. That's what MGM is now in a high rise. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's very sad because, you know, they used to be this huge mega powerhouse. Um, but, you know, Amazon is now leasing a studio lot in Culver City, which I I guess is probably where they're going to move the MGM offices to. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, you know, that may get them back on a lot. That said, the lot that they're leasing, um, which is right across the street from the old MGM studios, which is now Sony, uh, that lot... Uh, which uh, used to be, it was RKO way back in the day, Hmm. Um, one of the two RKO lots, and then also was Desilu for a while, and uh, uh, it's called the Culver Studios now. Um, It has, it's also where Selznick, David O. Selznick, produced his, most of his movies. Hmm. Um, It, uh, they tore down several uh, sound stages and replaced them with big, glass um office buildings Hmm. instead um so you know they're making it less it's only partially a studio space now and um they took away these you know super old like a hundred year old sound stages um for these big glass office buildings Hmm. and um if that's what amazon is thinking of being the movie business that that makes me sad hmm. and that gives me pause. Yeah. Because that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know how to feel about it. I mean, like it's like what, what's the worst thing that could happen to MGM now? Cause it's barely existed to begin <laughs> yeah. with, but, yeah. but also you want, you want to, you want to see the rebirth of the lion because it's, it's so intrinsic to movie. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I have such mixed feelings about like, you know, anything Amazon does <laughs> because there's such like, these yeah. huge tech companies controlling the world. This just makes me queasy. But, but I think, yeah. um, you know, in a perfect world, they're they're gonna put these some a, a bunch of movies in their library to make them more accessible. That's a good thing, I think. And then, um, yeah, hopefully not devalue stuff that's coming out because amazon studios has had some some right. good movies come out um but yeah, yeah. i mean the and big like, sick was an amazon movie and that yeah. movie's great i remember uh manchester so. by the sea was one of the one of the amazon releases that oh I really, yeah yeah i'm always a little surprised because it's not like i think about it as an amazon movie the way i would other studios maybe like i don't mm-hmm. know like mank or something I'm like okay that's a netflix movie but then i see that amazon logo at the beginning. oh this is an amazon thing but uh but yeah i guess the worry is that they're gonna like devalue bond or something but i think that there's not much danger of that anyway because that's co-owned right by the whatever the studio that owns bond so yeah um yeah. the uh well they have you know they've had distribution deals through other studios but the the broccoli family um has like co-ownership of bond mm-hmm. and I am sure that they are, you know, I, uh, Barbara Broccoli, I believe is her name, uh, who is carrying on that legacy now. And I, uh, Eon, Eon yeah, Productions, that's, right. that's what yeah. they're called. Um, and I am, whenever you get to talking about the new Bond movie, you should have me on because I've <laughs> yes. watched all of them. I, to, I yeah. binged, I binged all of, uh, most of mostly during quarantine, I binged all, uh, 24 official Bonds and the two not official Bonds. Wow, so. Wow. I have, I am, I have opinions. <laughs> you're you're and, 
Yes. And one of my opinions is that I am a Roger Moore defender. Right. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I think he gets a bad rap. But anyway, um, I think that, um, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting. It's also interesting that this happens, this news happened right after we learned that AT&T is divesting mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, and so now Discovery owns HBO, which is so strange to me. But, you know, whatever. I yeah. Guess. Well, I mean, it, it's it's an entertainment company, so yeah. at least it's you know in that family. But it, it the thing that's interesting about that is like one tech company dumped their studio, mm-hmm. and another tech co- company um, is uh, is buying a studio. So we have, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting. You know, tech yeah. definitely sees the convergence of the mediums. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I wonder, I've heard, you know, pundits saying, you know, we may see more big companies, tech, Apple could buy, you know, whatever studios that are struggling right now. So, yeah, it's interesting. Well, well I guess it'll be something to follow. But, well, thanks, yeah, for, yeah. thanks for giving your thoughts. I was like, as soon as it happened, I was like, I got to ask Rance about this because he, he might have some <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> well, many, many thoughts. Okay. Let's, let's move on and talk about today's movie, The Children's Hour. Go back to Joe, Karen. It's too much for you this way. Stop talking about it, Martha. Let's pack and get out of here. Let's take the train tomorrow. The train to where? I don't know. There must be some place we can go. I don't know where it is. They know about us. We've been famous. But this isn't a noose, and they say we've done. Other people haven't been destroyed by it. They're the people who believe in it, who want it, who've chosen it for themselves. We aren't like that. That must be very different. We don't love each other. We've been close to each other. Of course, I've loved you like a friend, the way thousands of women feel about other women. You were a dear friend who was loved, that's all. Certainly there can be nothing wrong with that. This is a movie that I believe is now owned by Amazon. Oh, wow. So So maybe this will be streaming. We were just talking about how this wasn't streaming anywhere convenient, but maybe it will be on Amazon before long. Uh, The movie is called (laughs) The Children's Hour. And it's amazing because, so so we're going to talk kind of, we're going to talk spoilers, but not yet. We'll talk kind of our general reactions and some of the history behind it before we get to spoiling it. Um, we do need to talk about the ending of this movie. Um, mm. But yeah, you chose this as something to talk about for Pride Month. And it's something I'd never even heard of. And, and so I'm, I'm so glad I asked you that uh, these are the kind of things that I discover doing this show. But um, <laughs> And the cast is incredible. And I was like, how have I not heard of this movie? But the, the basic setup of it, well, just like very, very basic. And then we can talk about kind of uh, some of the context but it is about two women who run a uh, girls boarding school and it's that's they are audrey hepburn and shirley mclean so like yeah i was like how did i never heard of this with these two actors in it Mm -hmm. um and there is an accusation that they have a quote-unquote unnatural relationship uh which is there's a lot of coded language is 1961 so there's uh, very little that's explicitly stated uh, but but just the accusation um, has some very detrimental effects on 
on their lives. And so it, it kind of goes into all kinds of things with that. And then there's some surprises that happen along the way too. Um, so it's, it's really an interesting movie. Like so I, I was, as I was watching this, I was like, this is such a fascinating thing this document from this time period. And like, again, how have I never heard of mm-hmm. this? So, uh, yeah. How, how many, let's see, when did you first see it and kind of what's your feelings around this movie generally? Um, I first saw it. Um, I don't remember. I may have Netflix the DVD like mm. 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, or, and then I saw it again <clears throat> a few years later um, where I see so many things, the TCM Film Festival. Yeah. And um, they had Shirley MacLaine there oh, wow. um, do a QA. and a And, um, and she, it, it was really funny. When we talk about the ending later, I'm going to mention a, a little bit more of this story, but she, she misremembered oh, the, the ending. The details of the film. <laughs> wow. Yeah, the details of the film. But she, um, she did it kind of hilariously because it was... Um, she gave a major spoiler, but she gave it wrong. <laughs> so it wasn't like she, she, so everyone gasped after she said it like, Oh, and she was like, Oh, and then she said something like, well, you've had 50 years. And, <laughs> and then it turned out like she spoiled it incorrectly. So it was wow. fine. That's um, so yeah, but, uh, but yeah, um, I, uh, I, I saw it those two times and, um, and, then I saw a documentary a, a few months ago called The Celluloid Closet, hmm, which um, is a wonderful documentary. I highly recommend it. Um, it would actually be something good to discuss on your podcast probably yeah, at some point. I'm going to make a note of that. Um, <laughs> um, and I um, saw that documentary and they discussed this movie in a larger context with some other films Mm -hmm. of the period that were starting to address homosexuality in various ways. Mm -hmm. And it made me, um, uh, even more fascinated with the subject material and what it represents for that time. Mm -hmm. So, um, anyway, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one to discuss for sure. Definitely. And uh, without spoiling it, I'll just say I was surprised by how um, heavy it gets because yeah, again, we'll talk about it later, but it it really took me off guard in a lot of ways. Um, But it's so 1961. And so I understand there's actually sort of another version of this and it's based on a Mm -hmm. play. Is that, is that all correct? Yes. uh, There is uh, it was originally a play uh, that came out in the thirties, if you'll believe it Mm, Um, very much like it, like you see it on screen and what we just watched. It existed in the New York theater. Um, Only a couple of details were changed and uh, that, you know, barely flew on stage in the 1930s. Mm, In fact, there were laws against um, such lewd mm. material, but they made an exception because of how well received it was. And then um, they, there was one Samuel Gold, Goldwyn uh, wanted to adapt the play. It was 1936. There was no way you're going to adapt it yeah. mm. the way that it existed. So they, um, they changed a few details to where the central lie, the rumor that yeah. is the, that is the, um, bedrock of the story um was changed to be about a uh straight affair not a Hmm. gay affair interesting um and uh then it was directed by william wyler um 
and then William Wyler uh, revisited it uh, when the restrictions with the code were more relaxed and he was able to uh, adapt the play as it was. Yeah, and that, that previous version is called These Three. I'm looking at it now, and it is on Prime Video, so you can watch that one on Prime. Um, but And it uh, one of the female stars of that is um, Miriam Hopkins, who uh, has a small role in this movie. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, I was looking. I thought that name sounded familiar. Great. Well, yeah, so it's, it is a very, it's a complicated story, um, mm-hmm. but I know you love William Wyler as a director, so when I realized, I was like, oh, this is a William Wyler thing. No wonder Rance likes it, um, but, <laughs> but yeah, it really is good. Um, so I guess let's talk about the actors, because, so first of all, let's talk about William Wyler, I guess, a little bit. We've talked about him before on the podcast, but he has a, a pretty enormous body of work, um, we talked about the best years of our lives before, uh, about a year ago or something, and I really, really like that one. Uh, what else is he kind of known for? Uh, William Wyler is one of the most prolific directors of that period, but he's also one of the most diverse directors, mm-hmm. and one of the very few that really had uh, just like a total control of his work. He gained a certain mm-hmm. amount of respect um, and then was able to uh, basically, you know, do the projects as he wanted. And and um, but he he seemed to have like no limit for uh, types of content because hmm, yeah. um, he was uh, he did obviously a kind of a melodrama like this, um, which deals with a very edgy for the time period mm-hmm. subject. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also did. A quintessential romantic comedy and Roman Holiday. Hmm. He did uh, one of the most popular star musicals of all time, Funny Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, he did uh, the quintessential biblical epic, Ben-Hur. Hmm. Um, he did uh, The Best Years of Our Lives, which, you know, is a, a wartime film. Weiler also did uh, a series of really great movies with... Um, that that won various performers academy awards he did uh the heiress with olivia de Havilland, which was her second oscar win he did betty davis and jezebel which was her oscar win um he actually has the most winning performances of any director he's directed the most people to oscars wow um of any director uh and he himself won three academy awards for best director including um, I already mentioned the best years of our lives and been her, but also the wartime uh, drama, Mrs. Miniver, mm. uh, which also won best picture. Um, so really there's like, he's just one of those people where it's, it's just seemingly there's nothing you can't do. And yeah. um, it's just a stellar, amazing body of work. And um, there's another movie called Doddsworth that is very little known that was made, uh, I believe, the same year as these three, 1936, um, that he did that uh, would be a good discussion movie one day, too. Um, yeah. It's just uh, he's just he's my favorite. So William Wyler, it's so interesting that, you know, you talk about the total control he gained because of, he was so prolific and he was operating in a time we didn't really have like tours the way we think of them now so i think it's so interesting that he was able to do that mm-hmm. well this film stars audrey hepburn and shirley mclean and it's so funny because I, I mean i'm very aware of audrey hepburn as a as a performer but i actually have seen 
relatively few of her films. So um, that she's so great in this, and so is Shirley MacLaine, both operating like top of their game as far as I'm concerned. Like really, really good. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, do we want to talk about like Audrey Hepburn's, you know? Oh yeah, for deal. Sure. <laughs> if I, people aren't you know, familiar it's interesting. with it. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, uh, I'm sure most people are familiar with. I bet you most people have maybe only seen one, if any, mm. Audrey Hepburn movies, though. Um, and that isn't, I mean, like, I'm not going to knock people too much for that because the fact is, she didn't make that many movies. Yeah. Mm. Um, she only, uh, less than 20. I don't remember what the exact number is, but um, she uh, was pretty choosy. With her projects, um, she was a top box office star from about 1953 with Roman Holiday um, till about 1967 when she uh, made both Wait Until Dark and Two for the Road. And uh, that 14-year period, you know, she's ruling the roost. And then she chooses to concentrate on her family huh. and... Um, doesn't really make movies for about a decade. And then after that only makes uh, a few movies sparingly uh, with her last uh, theatrical film uh, being the Steven Spielberg film always in case mm. anyone's wondering. Yeah. Um, so she has a career that spans all the way to Spiel- Spielberg, but there's very, um, yeah. she's very choosy, but the movies she makes are all like very wise choices um, because there are very few duds hmm. in her filmography. Um, you know, very few movies that uh, people couldn't watch and get something from today. Yeah. Um, she's probably most famous for uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, in large part because of the style of her in that movie, mm-hmm. the little black dress and, you know, um, yeah. just eating a eating a bagel or a donut. <laughs> Is it a bagel or a donut in front of uh, Tiffany's? Yeah, bagel, um, I think. She's, uh, despite controversy surrounding this particular film and its casting, she is known for My Fair Lady, probably, mm-hmm. in popular culture as well. Um, and Sabrina and Roman Holiday. Um, so there's a lot of good movies to choose from, but I think what a lot of people don't realize about her you know, because she comes off as this kind of light, airy, um, you know, often very funny mm-hmm. uh, woman. Um, and uh, is they don't know how good she is of a dramatic actress. Yeah. And this is one of the best examples um, alongside another movie called The Nun Story, I would say. Um, perhaps her best dramatic performance. Yeah, because in this she really has some some very fiery moments where she, uh, you know, is kind of giving some vitriol to some other characters, uh, and and yeah, just it's a little bit not what I expect from Audrey Hepburn, but it was really really good. Um, yeah, so fantastic to see her in this, and uh, it definitely gave me it colored my perception of her in a good way. I think um, <laughs> Shirley MacLaine. Let's talk about her. So she's been around for so long and done so many things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. I forget how long her career is sometimes. Cause I think that I, I associate her heyday as being, uh, in the eighties, hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because the thing I think I most associate her with is, um, 
uh, terms of endearment uh, mm-hmm. and steel magnolias, uh, yeah, things yeah. like that. And, um, and it's so interesting that she has had a career that has spanned so many phases to the point where she continues to get cast in, you know, grandmother mm-hmm. roles now, um, regularly today. And she's still very much a presence, um, in the world of film. And also, I, this is just an aside. I always forget that she's Warren Beatty's sister. Oh yeah. I um, forget that too. Yeah. And then, and that just adds a whole other level of interesting to her life. And the fact that in her opinion, she has had many lives. Hmm. So, um, you know, she's famous for being, uh, a new agey, you yeah, know, yeah. and her, uh, and her thoughts and beliefs. And, um, uh, she actually makes a cameo in a movie called defending your life. Um, which is a really great Albert Brooks comedy, uh, from the nineties that has Meryl Streep in it as well. And, um, as Albert Brooks and it's like, uh, it takes place in heaven, but it takes place, excuse me, in purgatory uh-huh. <laughs> and Never heard of people this. it's like in the city that you stay in before you get to go to heaven or, you know, um, if you're just going to end up staying in purgatory forever or whatever. And, um, the, uh, she has a cameo in this one section as a past life expert, (laughs) which Uh, is sort of reflecting her real life, like expertise, quote unquote expertise on that. Right. Yeah. Uh, When I think of Shirley MacLaine, I always think about the apartment, which is one of my very favorite movies. And, and I kind of experienced it when I was, you know, learning about feminism for the first time kind of and and she just breaks your heart and it, it kind of gave me helped me have a little more empathy for i don't know the female experience in a way that i didn't have before and she's so so good in that so that that will forever be one of my favorite shirley mclean things is is the apartment she has that great line she has that great line in the of the apartment about the the broken mirror mm. so my favorite pieces of dialogue you know the um why is your mirror broken um because it makes me look the way I feel mm. or whatever the line yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. So. That's a very good movie. Um, well, it is a great movie. So anyway. the, the other actors in the, in the children's hour are maybe less, I, I didn't recognize really any of them by name at least. Um, but yeah, let's talk about some of them. So James Garner is the male lead here. Uh, what, Do you know James Garner? Not that well. I, I, his name sounds familiar, but uh, James Garner is, uh, was a a really steady leading man in the sixties. Um, he had been on TV in a TV show called Maverick, um, which was later made into a movie with Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster and James Garner as well. Uh, they had James, they brought him back as a, you know, hat tip Mm, to his TV show. And, um, which hat tip really works well when you're talking about a Western. Cowboys, yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't even intend to make there that pun. Um, and then he also uh, became a romantic lead in like Doris Day comedies mm-hmm. in the 1960s. Um, and then he was on uh, a TV show in the 70s as well. Uh, I The name is escaping me right now. Um, it was like a procedural... Um, in the 70s let's see nichols um, sheriff frank nichols and nichols or the rock files oh the, the rock files yeah, yeah. yes 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 
Yes. And then he was in, in the 60s, he also was in uh, The Great Escape. He's the other oh, lead yeah. besides I've definitely Queen. seen that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And uh, he was in a, a John Frankenheimer movie, Frankenheimer movie called Grand Prix. Um, and, you know, John Frankenheimer is incredible. Mm-hmm. And um, he also was, you know, all the way up to movies like Space Cowboy. Yeah, I was um, just seeing that and, and The Notebook. I think he, he's the old man in The Notebook, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> the funny. old man in The Notebook. Oh, th- yeah. That's probably what I should have led with for people. <laughs> I went to his IMDb yeah. and I like, oh, The Notebook. There you go. That yes. and Divine Secrets of the Yai Sisterhood. You know, those are the ones that people <laughs> yeah. probably know. Um, but uh, yeah, he he's he's one of those people that you may not know you know, but you yeah. know. Yes, I'm um, realizing that live on the air. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I do know this guy. I mentioned Miriam Hopkins uh, earlier. She was a pretty prolific leading actress, particularly in the 30s. She's uh, She made a lot of really good pre-codes when she was a younger uh, leading lady. Um, so she did some racy, racier fare. Mm. Um, and then, uh, then there's an actress named Faye Bainter who plays the aunt in the movie. Mm-hmm. And Faye Bainter... up in a way, yeah. Yeah, she's the one who basically causes everything to happen. Uh, well, her her uh, granddaughter yeah. is the one who causes everything to happen, but she puts it in further motion. Um, and uh, she uh, was in a William Wyler film that I mentioned earlier called Jezebel, and she won Best Supporting Actress for playing an aunt in that movie in the 30s. Um, and she was the first person to be nominated in both lead and supporting in the same year. Cause she was also nominated for a leading role in 1938 for a movie. Um, so she uh, had a pretty, uh, extended Hollywood history of hmm. acting in movies. And then the, um, not the granddaughter but the granddaughter's friend that she blacks blackmails yes who is named uh, rosalie it's, it's veronica cartwright it's veronica cartwright who is probably better known um for being the younger sister in the birds okay yeah, um, yeah. and she's an alien and yeah she i i recognize her oh, adult face on imdb the, yeah she's um okay if you've never seen uh invasion of the body snatchers <laughs> okay i i have but I, it's been such a long time yeah I, this is a little bit of a spoiler okay but in invasion of the body snatchers she's the last survivor ah okay before and, and she the very famous ending shot of that movie of donald sutherland pointing mm-hmm. he is pointing at veronica cartwright <laughs> and she played in in connecting it to pride she played jack mcfarland's mother on will and grace oh, and okay. there's an episode where he comes out to her that's uh, one of the better episodes of that show that's so. very strange. i'm just noticing too speaking of pride she's in a movie a, a really small movie that i saw last year as part of the lgbt kaleidoscope festival called breaking fast and she plays someone's mother i think in it and uh oh. it's like a pretty small movie i was like oh i know that one <laughs> and it's about uh, a muslim yeah. doctor who's who's gay in uh, in la it's, there's a whole lot about like muslim culture it's really an interesting movie that's called breaking fast and it looks like it's on hulu so you can watch that if you want 
Look at that. So yeah, she. So there's some. This is a pretty deep bench. Yeah. If you will. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's a good. It's a good. Can it's a good kaleidoscope of people. Yes, <laughs> there's a kaleidoscope reference again too. Yes, yeah, all over the place and and yeah, really, really well written. So I guess I guess let's talk about the plot and maybe we can talk about the first third or so before we spoil oh, anything. Go ahead, go ahead. Um, yeah, the the writing it should mention here. Uh, the, the screenplay was by John Michael Hayes, who, um, was one of Hitchcock's favorite mm. writers. Oh, he yeah. wrote Rear, Rear Window, Window. Yep. um, The Trouble with Harry, which is, uh, Shirley MacLaine's film debut. Oh. Um, and he wrote The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, so he, he has a pretty good resume. And then Lillian Hellman is one of like the preeminent, uh, who did the stage play, She's one of the preeminent um, uh, uh, playwrights of the 20th century. Um, she uh, wrote a, uh, something called The Little Foxes, which um, got Bay Davis an Academy Award nomination mm-hmm. and was another William Wyler movie. Um, she uh, also wrote a story about her supposed activities during world war two lots of debate as to whether or not she was as heroic as <laughs> her stories say but um her stories were turned into a movie called julia which um was uh, starred jane fonda as lillian hellman um in the 1970s uh so uh anyway she so, yeah she's a big also, deal too yeah she was also uh, the romantic partner of Dashiell Hammett. Oh, okay. So, wow. yeah. Um, so she has a pretty <laughs> yeah. interesting, interesting life at a ba- at the base right there. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, le- the writing the writing is pretty astounding in this film. It really is, uh, and I, I guess with that we can talk about the movie a little bit. So, so yeah, it opens with. Um, yeah, on this school, and you're kind of learning, you know, the ins and outs. The the young girls live there. Um, it, they're, you know, barely making money. They're making money for the first time, kind of just finally breaking even. And um, they, and you can tell that these two women do everything. Like they're doing the dishes, they're like washing the laundry, they're the teachers, <clears throat> they're doing the business, like paying the bills and everything. Uh, and so, like, they're kind of spread thin. And that's made a little more complicated because, um, Audrey Hepburn's character, whose name is Karen, uh, is engaged or not engaged, is, has not committed to be engaged yet to Dr. Joe Carden, who is James Garner. And he's always mm-hmm. you know, saying, why won't you marry me? And she's like, well, we got to get the school on its feet before I can do that. So they're kind of right on the cusp of, of wanting to, to do that. And she finally says, OK, we're doing well enough. Um, and then that news is not something that uh, Martha, played by Shirley MacLaine, takes well uh, and, and it's it's clear early on that she's unhappy with Dr. Joe's presence at all um, because he kind of represents, you know, taking her away from, from the school. And, and it's, it's not clear how they're going to be able to keep going if she leaves and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the very initial tension of, of the movie. And uh, yeah. then that one of the girls who is troubled we shall say she causes a lot of trouble uh her name's mary and essentially the inciting incident that happens about a third into this is she tells a lie that um that these two women karen and martha 
who run the school are uh, again it's there's a lot of coded language like they never use the word lesbian in this movie at all um mm-hmm. nothing like that but she says they have an unnatural relationship and she tells her grandmother this who her grandmother's the only person she seems to love or trust and um you know she's fed up because she gets in trouble all the time and she also yeah blackmails other students and that plays into it as well and uh so yeah this that that's the inciting kind of thing that happens pretty early on and um from there there's just a lot of tumultuous <laughs> drama that that kind of ratchets up and up uh yeah, yeah. Have I left anything else out of the beginning of that i think that's a you set it up pretty well yeah uh i guess maybe from here we should say spoiler alert um there's a little more we can talk talk about it but i don't know how we can talk about it (laughs) i kind of have to talk about the ending of this so if you've not seen it go watch it it's you can rent it anywhere um it is again highly recommended for me so I, i recommend that you watch it um but okay let's talk about the rest of it so so yes the mary tilford spreads this lie um and it's the the scene where she tells her grandmother is very interesting because they're in the back of this car and she's kind of going, it's very like, you know, a, a young girl telling gossip, like, well, so-and-so said this and so-and-so said this. And the, the grandmother has to kind of put it together from these little bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so it's, it's played really interesting. And there's a few moments where, uh, and again, it's like, it's not really said explicitly later in the film. There's a, a, an explicit sentence of like, they said that we are lovers and like that's that's as mm-hmm. um i think explicit as anything has ever said but there's a several moments where you know that the information is being told but it's in the distance and it's silent and we can't hear it um but i thought that was a really nice touch the one in there in the car they're, they're like it shows the driver is driving them he has the glass window up so we can't hear but we see the grandmother's reaction to hearing the mm-hmm. secret and then later when so all the all the girls are being pulled out of school because the the gossip is spread around between all the moms in town, and they're like, "Why are why is everyone pulling their kids out of school? What's going on? We're going to go bankrupt." And one of the dads finally tells one of them the you know the rumor, but again, it's all it's off in the distance, and we just see Audrey Hepburn's body language as she's hearing this and then telling Shirley MacLaine too, and it's uh, it's just really well well done. So I I am a fan of the direction that. Uh, William Wyler put together with this, but yes. So from there, uh, I don't know. Do you want to take yeah. a, take a crack at some of the plot? I feel like I'm talking too much. Oh no, it's fine. There, you you chose a good period because there was like sirens going off oh, in okay. the background. You know, <laughs> reminding everyone I live in this city. Yes. Um. Uh. <laughs> but um. Yeah. So uh. From there. Um, things get very dark. There's a, there's a suit, uh, brought against, mm. um, the girls, um, uh, which, you know, could totally, you know, end the school as we know it. But even the suit itself doesn't even really matter at that point, because just having this yeah. rumor in existence, mm. you know, ruins their, their, their school. Um, and, um, eventually, uh, you know, uh, the James Garner, Audrey Hepburn thing develops further. And, you know, he, uh, she confronts him and asks him whether or not he believed the rumor to be true. And, uh, he hesitates and that hesitation causes her to dump him. Yeah. And then, um, she talks to Shirley MacLaine about this and Shirley MacLaine feels very responsible for 
the bad things that are happening in Audrey Hepburn's life because Sterling Acclaim begins to realize that she is in fact in love with mm-hmm. um, Audrey Hepburn or Martha realizes she's in love with Karen. Yeah. And even after um, the uh, grandmother r- r- learns the truth, mm-hmm. um, tries to comes backpedal. Over, yeah. Tries to backpedal, tries to give them money with a settlement um, you know, they ref- or Karen, I should say, refuses. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, even though things look like maybe they'll get better, then, you know, um, Martha feels so overwhelmed with guilt that she uh, hangs herself. Yeah. And uh, the movie ends at her funeral with uh, um, everything kind of sad <laughs> yeah yes yeah. yeah so that it i did not expect that ending like even knowing you know and so i think it's it is a good one in a way it's not a it's not a happy movie to talk about for pride month but i think it is like that's still a problem you know it's a very real problem uh and i think the the, the scene where it's where shirley mclean is um you know confessing that i do have these feelings and she has so much internalized shame about it clearly and, and so i just think it's like a so, so yeah, we feel all the shame from her. And so I thought, you know, if this was real life, this might happen. And I didn't think she would actually, that would happen in this movie, but it, that it does that she dies by suicide. But, um, very dark, very, very, very dark. But I mean, yeah. what were you going to say? Oh, yeah. I'll no, I was just going to say like, you know, in 1961, we're not going to get a big, you know, pride movie or like you know legalized gay anything like that is not going to happen but i think in a way this movie probably did something to kind of foster empathy because we see alongside shirley mcclain like the movie is on her side you know in a way and she's not like it a is. villain yeah. and so we under, i mean i can imagine for people at the time and people today watching this can see like um one this isn't a choice like this is and it's not something that basically that that the problem is is society and their treatment of her with this and like how much damage it does to her to um to have you know all the talk of it's a sin and all this that's that that's like in the legal system uh and, and all of that and that ultimately leads her where she ends up and it's just really heavy and like yeah i i I, I, it's a serious movie and it's a dramatic movie, but until that ending, it didn't, um, I didn't realize it had quite the teeth that it has, I think. And it really, really impacted me. Um, so yes, I think this movie, uh, in a way shines a light on an issue that's still very much a, a real issue. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's so important. Um, uh, it's such a great example of, of how, uh, homosexuality was a was dealt with during this period. You know, mm-hmm. if we went back um, to the early 30s and the uh, into the 30s, less so as the code comes into play, um, the production code. But um, you know, there are depictions of gay people um, in as like very coded, flamboyant, mm-hmm. you know, characters that are kind of you know just there for laughs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the first representation you really get. Um, then once they actually start tackling the subject, um, as the restrictions loosen in the sixties, um, you get movies like this. And even after 
the code breaks down, the the shame is what is largely mm-hmm. explored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you'll have other movies that tackle this uh, a few years later. Uh, Midnight Cowboy is mm-hmm. a very famous example of something very, very violent and dark happening, which could be read as a response to internal internalized homophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially since that movie was directed by a gay man, which uh, takes it even farther. Oh, wow. um, but uh, this is one of the earliest examples of what is going to become a trope, which uh, is a double-edged sword because it does, on the one hand, actually show in an empathetic way um, something that had was not being discussed and was considered illegal in much of the country. Um, but at the same time, it also is perpetuating this suicide hmm. aspect, um, which is very real and very honest. But for a long time, that was it yeah. as mm-hmm. far as homosexual depictions on film. Um, so you can only imagine what it would be like to only see death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. as your choice in cinema yeah you know mm-hmm. so uh so it's it's a it, it's i i picked it because i think it um is a i think it's a great movie but i also think it is a um a very perhaps the best example of a very unfortunate trend that mm-hmm. becomes um becomes a very um um in i mean just a very interesting trend that happens over the next couple of decades after this movie yeah i guess it's a while before there's really movies celebrating you know gay joy and that kind of thing yeah yeah to be fair i mean like outside of some smaller examples you know there's a few there's a few indie films that uh are smaller movies you know um probably uh the most famous early example would be like boys in the band, Hmm. um, which was remade this last year. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, and there's uh, some other not super well known, but I mean, then, you know, in the, in the eighties, uh, particularly in the nineties, when they really start making movies about it, you know, AIDS becomes the, Mm -hmm. the, um, the overwhelming topic. Um, and, uh, I don't think, positive queer representations really happened until the 21st century in any type of regular way. Um, you know, in the nineties we started getting more, um, like, you know, you know, the sympathetic, uh, gay best friend and my Mm -hmm. best friend's wedding or, Mm -hmm. or in and out, you got a, a good, uh, more positive representation. Um, but even then a lot of the positive representations, you know, in the post Ellen post will and grace Mm -hmm. world have not been of lesbians or trans people. Mm -hmm. Um, they've been of white gay men, Mm -hmm. um, which is, it's interesting that, that's the, and they've been played by straight men, (laughs) um, largely, Mm -hmm. 
That's a whole other um, interesting yep. conversation about, you know, should that be the, the case? But anyway, go on. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, like even when Will and Grace was on the air, Sean Hayes was not out hmm. until after Will and Grace, uh, the original series ended. So, um, you know, and Eric McCormick is straight and there's nothing he, he's, I wouldn't change the cast of that show. No. I'm just saying it is interesting, um, that, uh, you know, the first, it seems like such progress, but it should be noted that the the progress for, you know, speaking specifically to this movie, lesbian representation on film outside of perhaps being used as a sexual um, a sexualization yeah. by yeah. straight men uh, does uh, is something that I, I still think is um, struggling to happen because, uh, you know, out, we've had, we've had movies like portrait of a lady on fire and we've had Carol. Yeah. Um, but, uh, as far as, you know, really a happy lesbian movie, uh, has, have we really gotten a, a lot of happy lesbian movies? Not really. Um, I'm, I'm wrecking my brain. The only thing I could think of is, uh, whatever that Christmas movie was last year with Kristen Stewart in it. Uh, I know. And that wasn't a, that was, you know, a, a Netflix movie that wasn't yeah. like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a huge major release. But um, so there, I, I think that this is another movie. This is an important movie to talk about as well, because like how far have we really progressed from this moment? Yeah. Wow. That's a really good point. And yeah. 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 Well, that is very. Just bring everything down. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, okay. Well, I was going to ask, um, do you know anything about the response to this movie at the time? Um, well, uh, looking at the the box office, it had a pretty large budget for the time. Uh, three point six million is the figure I'm seeing, um, and it only made three million at the box office, which would have been a respectable amount to make in the early mm-hmm. '60s, but not if your production costs are that high. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, you always want to make double the production cost. I am assuming that this was probably uh, when movies are depressing like this, you know, I, I don't know if it has much to do with material as it did with the fact that people just didn't want to see an unhappy movie with, yeah. with Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but uh, the movie has kind of grown, I think in respect because of its, unique place that it plays in history and the fact that it was featured in this wonderful nineties documentary called the celluloid closet that I mentioned earlier. Um, I think that brought new awareness to it for the queer community. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and the fact that it is in the canon of two of the more popular actresses of all time probably helps, uh, Mm -hmm. helps it in stature a little bit, but it was not a huge, it was not a huge hit at the time. Yeah. It, it wasn't, I, I don't know if it, a, a box office bomb is the right word. Cause it did to get nominated for five Academy Awards. Um, and, uh, including, uh, best supporting actress for Faye Bainter, who mm-hmm. played the grandmother, uh, cinematography, costume design, art direction, sound. I will say the, the art direction and the cinematography for the moment in which um, Audrey Hepburn discovers uh, uh, Shirley MacLaine are, it's pretty haunting. Yeah. They do a great job of that moment. There are several really good shots that I thought there's like two shots of them standing together, or there's one where the little girl, uh, Mary is, has 
they're trying to get the truth out of her and she has both of the women over her shoulders and it's just this this kind of close up on her yeah the, the camera work is really really well done i did note that um yeah yes for sure well anything else we need to talk about with uh with this movie I mean, pr- probably could come up with a million things, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose you you do other stuff on this podcast too. So. <laughs> I suppose so. Uh, well, that is the children's hour. Uh, we do recommend it. Really interesting, especially like as a cultural document of that time. And I'm so glad that I've seen it and that we we talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned at the top of the show some some resources um, as far as uh, the, the Trevor Project is doing studies about you know suicide among LGBTQ youth and. Um, I think that's that's really important work. So I'll link to some things there. Because I think, you know, educating yourself about the reality that's still going on and that kind of along mm-hmm. these lines is an important thing. And, and it's an important step towards, you know, systemic change. So check that out. Yeah. Um, I recommend reading through that. Uh, yeah, so that is... Oh, and I did want to ask you one more thing, Rance. What was... Uh, what did what did Shirley McLean say at the TCM festival? Oh, that was incorrect. I forgot. <laughs> I, just I forgot. She, she told the ending of the movie and she was describing something about the way the scene was shot, but she remembered it to where Audrey Hepburn committed suicide and not uh. her. And she was <laughs> describing her discovering Audrey's body. And, and that was not the way the movie ended. So, so I don't know where her, where her brain was. I don't know if she was saying the wrong name or she just totally remembered the plot differently, but <laughs> No, that's um, what I'm saying. I always wonder, like, with with actors, especially who've been acting for so long, like, do you remember everything about every movie you've ever done? Probably not. <laughs> that's, probably that's, that's probably not. <laughs> well, that is really cool. I wonder if that cause some of those TCM things are on YouTube and stuff. I'll try and find that and put in the show notes if it's out there because that sounds like an interesting uh, yeah, Q and A. Maybe, maybe on YouTube. I don't know if they if TCM officially recorded it, but maybe somebody somebody uploaded it illegally oh. i'm sure they did i think they record everything but you know whether or not it's out there yeah. who knows anyway well that is the children's hour thank you so much rance for joining me for this i'm so excited so so next time on uh for our other pride month episode we're gonna do um the, the plan is to talk to a trans woman named evelyn landau who is a filmmaker and we're going to talk about a netflix documentary called disclosure which is about sort of the history of trans representation in the media specifically in movies and tv and so i'm, I'm glad ranch that you and i talked about sort of uh, you really just brought in a lot of good kind of context for representation since then and, and a little bit before then and all of that because uh, disclosure does that for trans people and it's really um, I, i've watched it once before i'm going to rewatch in the next couple weeks but I'm excited to look at that one, and it is uh, it, it kind of shows the good, the bad, and the ugly um, because there have been some good things, especially in recent years, and uh, and it interviews a lot of trans actors uh, and filmmakers. Um, yeah, and it's it's really really fascinating. So check that out. That's on Netflix. Easy to watch. Disclosure, and tune in for that for next time. But till then, uh, thanks so much, Rance, and I guess we'll talk to you. Uh, in a few weeks, we'll get back to our technical marathon and talk about the red shoes. But till then, I guess we'll say. I can't wait. Farewell till then. Thanks, Rance. Farewell. And with that, thank you, thank you for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes, and you can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Art House Garage, leave a rating or review in your podcast app. Or you can buy an Art House Garage t-shirt at arthousegarage.com slash shop. Stay in the loop about Art House Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter 
by going to arthousegarage.com subscribe, or you can email me directly, andrew at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free. Mm-hmm.